0: you listening to a podcast of spurious morality.
1: Oh, I like that. Yeah, Different I, I, I won't.
0: Li- I won't lie. I practiced. <laughs>
1: Just <to be> sure. <laughs> you were ready for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: God, I thought. Come on, you've got to come up with something.
1: to a podcast of spurious morality i'm johnston and this week i'm joined by gareth hello gareth hello again uh, it, it's good to have you back it's been a little while um this is your, it has. your first, i've been hibernating been, yes um, but hopefully you've been consuming some excellent big finish while hibernating uh, and are are ready to talk about it now
0: I certainly have in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, no, who am I kidding? The last week it's been a cram,
1: but I've got them in. Cram your podcast, revising. I like it. Mm. Um, so we've picked a few. Well, last time you're on, uh, we looked at a couple of trilogies. We looked at a couple of just. We kind of picked two random-ish big, tri- big finished trilogies out of the air and had a look at them. We were going to do the same this time, but instead we sort of decided to take a look at some earlier big finish releases so we're kind of going right back to the beginning here sort of the first i think everything we've got in the first sort of 20 or so monthly range releases from big finish um and there's the, some good stuff in there it, it was it was a nice little era i sort of think that first first 50 releases is very much its own kind of era um it's it's big finish sort of setting out being a bit experimental figuring out what they can do doing stories that take advantage of the audio medium and all this kind of thing and it's it's sort of a very unique little bit to look at so i'm kind of glad we're we're revisiting it for the purposes of this um so i i sent you out to to pick six stories we've actually sort of ended up with seven for reasons we'll discuss in a moment but um it's it's going to be fun this i think so the first story on our list is the the second story, uh, Doctor Who story anyway. The big finish put out. It's Phantasmagoria, which is a Fifth Doctor and Turlo story, and that in itself is a bit of a rarity. There hasn't been that much just Fifth Doctor and Turlo stuff. We've had Teegan and Turlo, and Nissa Teegan and Turlo, and all that kind of thing. But Five and Turlow is still sort of a fairly underrepresented TARDIS team. Um, I suppose Phantasmagoria probably came about because it was a case of who's available uh, in those early, early days. So uh, why have you picked Phantasmagoria and talk to us about it a bit?
0: Um, Well, mostly it was because I didn't really remember it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to bother kind of digging into older releases, I I should probably try and avoid the favourites. So, um, you know, your spare parts and your holy terror. Uh, And I thought, well, I have heard this one. It's been a hell of a long time. And I was just curious, really, because when you go back, or in my experience, to the start of the monthly range, obviously the Sirens of Time kind of gets the focus because that's the big celebratory kickoff. But I thought, well, Phantasmagoria is the kind of first... It's sort of the proto Big Finish monthly story. It's the first one where we just have an adventure with Doctor Companion, blah blah blah. Um, so I thought, how did they tackle it, kind of on day one? Um, and it's interesting you mentioned about Turlo because that's something that's kind of fascinating. Looking at all of these stories, is uh, sort of what pairings they went with and what groups. And I think you're right that it was a case of Tegan was not available because really, the Doctor and Turlo that was never really a thing like they were in one story but obviously that was his leaving story um and you know later on you'd get the doctor and perry with rmm as well which again that wasn't really a thing and i kind of wonder about the thinking behind that whether that was um you know kind of consciously sort of scrambling to be like oh we can't get janet fielding because she doesn't really do this anymore or were they going let's try and do something different um but either way you know uh mark strickson he's great. Uh, it's, it's good to have the two of them back, and it's, it kicks the series off pretty well. Um, but yeah, so with Phantasmagoria, kind of the main thing to jump out at you, is, or me anyway, is the cast. Because you've got uh, David Williams and Mark Gatiss. Gatiss obviously who wrote it, but um, there's something very funny about the fact that the first Peter Davison uh, Doctor Who audio has the guys who kidnapped him on Doctor Who night in it. Uh, could not get that image out of my head uh yeah. but um yeah i very much imagined both of them were like oh yes we're def- we're on the the waiting list to be in this as soon as possible and they both really get into it you know they're, they're very kind of rich voice characters you know both of them are kind of doing a thing with those characters um but we've also got david ryle in here who off the top of my head i can't really say what my favorite thing or really the main thing is that i've seen him in but it just hearing his voice pop up was kind of like, God, they got him. That's, that's really good for, like, day one. Um, I'm kind of rambling now. So the story, it's a sort of magical one where you've got uh, seemingly some sort of spiritual thing going on where players of card games are going missing. And, you know, in natural Doctor Who fashion, it kind of turns out there's a sort of sci-fi element and aliens do get involved later on. But uh, for a while, it feels like it's kind of your typical Gates kind of horror gothic thing, because that's where he seems to be comfiest as a writer. You know, saying that in like my pathetic Doctor Who only sort of sphere. I haven't read a lot of this other stuff, but he really seems to enjoy kind of leaning towards horror. So it's sort of unsurprising that he kind of gravitated towards that to kind of make a spooky story. Um, yeah, what did you think?
1: Get us on track. <laughs> I, uh, get us on right. I think it's an awful lot of fun. And I think yeah. you're right. It's, its main job is to be the first regular monthly big finish Doctor Who adventure. Yes, we'd had Sirens of Time and it was the big mm-hmm. multi-doctor team up. And it, it kind of gave us just a little taste of each Doctor. But this one is very much a, okay, this is a story that we are dropping right into the middle of season 21 um and you know we're, we're already playing with the tardis team that we never really saw uh on screen um i think turlow's an absolutely great character i i think turlow's probably actually my favorite fifth doctor companion and i do think it's a shame that they never just got a bit of a chance to be a team on their own i mean the doctor and hmm. a male companion solo is a very very rare thing we don't actually see even that very often um no. so it it al- already it's giving us something a bit different and a bit unique but it's it's a nice sort of fairly traditional fifth doctor story actually it's you know it, it brings to mind the visitation i guess in some ways it's wildly different it has it certainly has influences from the doctor who that there had been since mm. it finished on tv i think in these early big finishes there are clear sort of uh new doc uh, new adventures uh, missing adventures that kind of thing influences um that maybe big finish has lost over the years it's become its own thing or become more influenced by the new series and quite rightly too these things do have to keep moving on um so yeah i i i really i like this one um so yeah, just a, a few other notes on it. Then um,
0: there is a little bit of awkwardness about it. Uh, so there are scenes where Turlo kind of talks to himself, and there are scenes where the Doctor kind of talks to himself. Um, but you have to bear in mind, you know, this is this is pretty early stuff. You know, as far as I know, Mark Gatiss hadn't been off writing audio dramas. Uh, you know, so like Nick Briggs had been off doing audio visuals and stuff. I don't know about Mark Gatiss. So this is the sort of thing they would kind of iron out later on. Um, and there's also a tendency in the story where the Doctor and Turlough don't massively influence events. Well, that's kind of my understanding anyway. It was a, a little bit kind of inadvertently sort of New Who-ish, particularly the sort of Christopher Eccleston season, where um, a guest character has to kind of step up and, and sort it out. Um, I think it was Julia Dawkins' character. I was quite excited that she was in it because she's in um, Nebulous which is the radio series with Mark Gatiss, which if you've not heard it, is outstanding and should be definitely on everybody's list. It's very funny. But anyway, um, yeah, so there were some sort of character notes in there that I thought if we'd got this release a bit later on, they probably would have had another pass at that. But that's not really to say it's it's bad. It's just it's it's interesting to look back on older releases and be like, the approach, how does that compare to now? But sound-wise, I mean, yeah, it's it's um, surprisingly accomplished. <laughs> but but you know, it shouldn't be a surprise really because Big Finish were already doing Bernie Summerfield and all sorts of stuff. And like I said, you know, with the audio visuals, they already had tacitly kind of years of experience at it.
1: Yeah, it's it's most certainly Big Finish finding the feet still, but I think that's probably something you can pick out of the first. Twenty thirty releases uh in the monthly range and like you say they're already doing big fit um uh, beneath summerfield um yeah. but i think that it, it's it's a particularly strong start um if you you know if you want to look at it that way and i think yes it is really it's the it is the start it's the first proper doctor who story the first four-parter um, but yeah, Gaitus is great. Uh, it has just dawned on me that he kind of, sort of name checks it in uh, the Unquiet Dead. There's, you know, a Charles Dickens exclaims, "Oh, phantasmagoria!" I guess he's kind of <laughs> winking towards his own work when he says that. Um, why not? So, yeah, why not? But yeah, no, it's it's a great start. It's it's a good little bit of uh, early big finish. And like I say, I'm I'm glad it uses a. A, an underutilized TARDIS team even now they're an underutilized TARDIS team uh shall we Shall we move on yeah okay um so we're looking at another fairly early fifth Doctor story here then um I think this is a great choice actually I'm really glad you've picked this one it's primeval um, which is another Tardis team that we never actually got to see on screen, but Big Finish have massively expanded on. It's the Fifth Doctor and Nyssa as kind of a a solo team. There's no Adric, there's no Tegan, there's no Turlo. It's just the two of them. Um, and I, it, it's a really good sequel slash prequel to uh, the Keeper of Traken. So it's a big kind of personal to Nissa story, I guess, and it has one of my favourite. Guest appearances in Uh, Stephen Greif is the villain and (laughs) plays it absolutely beautifully. Um, So yeah, talk to us about Primeval.
0: Um, Well, I had—I'm not certain I'd ever actually listened to it. Uh, It's one of those releases where you kind of—you know—you've got it on your pile and you can't quite recall if you've actually gone through it. Um, But yeah, no, it's—it's interesting because it's one of those stories that starts off uh, with the action already underway which was very rare uh, with telly Doctor Who. So, you know, you'd always have your yeah, TARDIS team arrives, has a look around, what's going on, there's a dead body, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, in this one, we're following on from what I assume was um, maybe a cliffhanger ending in a previous story uh, when Nyssa collapses. I, d- I don't know if that's the case, actually, but uh, it doesn't matter. You d- you're not missing anything if you haven't heard any previous uh, story, because they do explain that basically... She's collapsed. The Doctor's panicked and taken her to uh, Tarkin of, uh, I think he says, is it thousands of years previously? Or hundreds?
1: No, doesn't I really think matter it's though. thousands, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, so he takes her back there cause he figures, well, they'll, they'll be able to deal with this the best. And you see Trachan, um they don't yet have a keeper, so it's, it's all a little bit more sort of woolly, the way they do things there. And they've got this kind of uneasy... Uh, stand off with uh, a villainous force that kind of lives on their periphery. And that's uh, that's where Stephen Greif comes in, and obviously he's just got this ridiculous, uh, amazing kind of villain voice on him. Um, Stephen Greif obviously being Travis Mark I from, uh, from Blake 7, uh, amongst other things. Um, yeah, the story has some really great bits in it. Uh, I think my favourite bit is probably uh nissa towards the end who's kind of had enough you know she's she's been kind of ignored and uh threatened with execution a bunch of times and you don't often see uh nissa stand up for herself you know she on tv she kind of suffered from uh, the character's a bit sleepy syndrome quite often but uh, in this one there's a bit where she uh, has a gun on her and she gets the gun off the the antagonist and she says i am going to shoot you and kill you unless you tell me how the stun setting works, which is just such a brilliant kind of uh, dilemma to kind of force the antagonist into, you know, you're going to go along with this or you're potentially going to get killed. And I just thought that was, that was incredible to uh, to see from Nyssa. Um, and there's some really interesting stuff from the Doctor in it as well, where um, I can't tell, and it's not a, it's not a problem that I can't tell, I think it's interesting that I can't tell, whether or not he kind of, lets a lot of this happen through you know by mistake um because he kind of takes uh, he takes it on himself to go and see this antagonist guy Stephen gripe's character uh to to help nissa out because he believes that's the only way and it's a little bit like as a listener you know as a, as a as a real person listening to doctor who you're kind of like come on it's this guy's the the problem here like he's the reason this has happened and the Doctor doesn't really register that. And he's, hes you know, obviously massively cares for Nyssa, and he's like, look, I'll do anything. I've i have got to try it. So he goes and tries it, and I think that's an interesting kind of, the Fifth Doctor wears his heart on his sleeve. I think I said the last time I was here that, that I felt like the Fifth Doctor was the one who felt the most kind of duty of care to his companions. Uh, maybe not out of all the Doctors, but certainly he's up there. So, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a, a flaw in his character, but a deliberate one to be like, you know, I will, I'll take this rather large risk <laughs> and go and see this pretty obvious villain and get his help. But there's another bit later on where the problem has effectively been resolved and uh, he and Nissa are, are, are going to leave. And he says, right, well, I'm going to, I'm I'm too curious. I can't leave this. I've got to go and find out this last piece of the puzzle. So they go and they have a look in the uh, the source chamber or whatever it's called. And that, of course, is the last thing that Stephen Grimes' character needs in order to, uh, you know, execute his, his master plan. So again, there are a couple of bits in this story where the Doctor kind of lets in an own goal. And you kind of think, is that by mistake? Because if it was Sylvester McCoy, I'd kind of come away from Prime Evil thinking ah, it was all part of his plan. Because in the end, he does uh, he turns it all around and it's very satisfying when he does. But... Um, yeah interesting did you what about you did you think was he was he ahead of the game or was he kind of letting his concern for his companion and his own kind of curiosity get in the way
1: uh i don't think the fifth doctor is ever ahead of the game really (laughs) ouch (laughs) i think it's i I think it's an integral part of the character actually there's yeah you know, there's a level of desperation built up around the Fifth Doctor. And obviously this is set uh post earth shock. So we've already lost Adric. And I think that actually that that sort of adds to what's going on a little bit. Like he is a bit desperate. He's determined to save Nyssa and makes yeah. mistakes because of that. Um and because of obviously what did happen with Adric um i think that the you mentioned that obviously nissa has collapsed previously i think it's actually a link yeah. back to when she collapses at the end of four to doomsday um and it, oh. it it's it's presented here as an ongoing problem like doomsday wasn't the only time that she collapsed that's and true
0: she yeah had a little, that's, she the baddie had does reference Kinder, this doesn't didn't it? she yeah. Um,
1: yeah so yeah i think that's what it is it's kind of sort of retroactively going oh, well that was a bigger problem than you think it is and sort of two days sleep during kinder didn't quite solve everything um mm. so i think that's where it's going um i've little to add to what you've said already it was it, it was quite uh comprehensive but again i'm just going to mention how brilliant stephen Greif's voice was and um you know i i loved the fact that he came back when big finish started doing blake seven and it, it's it genuinely is a voice that I'm going to miss at Big Finish. Now he's no longer with us. Um, yeah. This this is it's such a fantastic performance, and it does sort of make you wonder: Well, why did it take you know collectively? Why did it take until 2001 to cast him in Doctor <laughs> Who? Because actually, he'd have been a cracking villain in the 80s. Could you imagine him as the Borad <laughs> or something like that? You know, oh that would yeah, have been, it been... <laughs> Paul Darrow as Tekka. and oh that'd have been amazing. Oh, oh god oh, the, how did the,
0: they miss that
1: the time lash we could have had
0: <laughs> <laughs> i mean would it would it have been better or worse better i don't know um to to just kind of giant hams not like Stephen greife is normally a ham but i reckon if you put him in that setting they'd both absolutely be yeah,
1: i mean nobody, like nobody was taking each other nobody was taking time lash seriously were they but that's an <laughs> interesting interesting point in a parallel universe somewhere he was a Doctor Who villain in the late 70s or in the 80s. And I, I think mm-hmm. that would have actually been pretty fantastic. But we've got an excellent performance here. And, you know, Big Finish, as I say, they did they, they use him again elsewhere to various effects. He's also in, is it Ghost Walk He's the villain as well? Another monthly range.
0: I am going to embarrass myself now. I've actually heard Ghost Walk and I don't remember spotting
1: it. I'm I'm going but, to embarrass uh, <laughs> myself even more. We did a podcast on it not that long ago. Oh, um, I'll have to re-listen to it. It is. It's Ghost Walk. He's the villain in Ghost Walk. Um, it's a good release, though. I remember yeah, enjoying he's, it. He's excellent in that. It's another really, really sort of creepy, powerful performance. Um, and he's definitely. I think he's the highlight of both Primeval and that. To be perfectly honest, he's he's absolutely brilliant. Ooh.
0: I've just thought of a defence for myself. I think that might actually have been before I watched Blake Seven, so there's a chance. The last time I heard Ghost Walk, I literally didn't know who Stephen Greif was. Now I'm going to go with that. That's my that's my attempt to defend myself.
1: I shall let you off this time, then. Thank you. <laughs> um, so let's move on to our next story, and it's it's one that we hadn't actually planned to talk about, but sort of decided we should probably just mention. Um yeah. because uh we've we've obviously talked about Phantasmagoria, the first fifth Doctor story. We're going to talk about the Fearmonger, the first seventh Doctor Story. So we thought it'd be rude to not mention Whispers of Terror, which is the first sixth Doctor story at Big Finish. Mm. Um so it it's getting an honourable mention, and I will just I'll quickly add um that I I particularly like the fact that this is an audio drama that really takes advantage of the fact that it's on audio it's it's not just giving us the first six doctor story they could have got, you know gone with something fairly comfy and fairly traditional and you know, something that turns perry into a bird-like creature or something like that but instead <laughs> they went well we're playing with the audio medium it's let's let's do something with that let's play with that um so whispers of terror what are your thoughts
0: uh well like you said um I I kind of regretted not picking it in the first place because I suddenly realised we'd picked a couple of firsts and thought, right, okay, even if we're not going to do it, I need to remember it for due diligence, just just how Colin got started compared to the other two. Um, and also, actually, I'm not sure I have ever heard it before. It's another one of those where I think it was kind of sat in my little pile of stories to get back to one day. But you're right, the the choice to do an audio monster is a very interesting one to come to this early in the run, because they they do this sort of thing again a few times, and they do find different ways to do it. So you've got kind of Ish, which is a a brilliant, kind of weird conceptual story about a language monster, and you've got Scherzo, I think is the pronunciation? The Eighth Doctor one? I don't know. Scherzo or Scherzo? Um,
1: Scherzo. I've always had it as Scherzo, but I could be wrong. Well,
0: Well, we'll stick with Scherzo, and Robert Shearman can, can tut unhappily at us if we're wrong. Um, sorry, Robert. <laughs> but anyway, yes, uh, it's a very clever, creative decision to go with that this, this early in the run. One thing I do find fascinating about story is the story is the companion pairing. So in this one, uh, it's very, very definitely season 22, Doctor and Perry. So literally in their first scene, they're both sniping at each other. And the Doctor in this is very much uh, kind of a sarcastic blowhard. And um, yeah, Perry's kind of rolling her eyes a lot of the time. And I thought thought that was really interesting because it's one of those things I hadn't really considered. is just how rarely the Sixth Doctor was paired with Perry in the early days. So if you go through the credits, uh, or or rather Nicola Bride's credits on, on Big Finish, and look through the Collins stories, it's kind of one every two years or so, two or three years. Um, until it gets a little more stable later on, and I wondered if the reason for that was Colin kind of going right. Well, we've done grumpy, snarky Doctor. Um, can we do something else? Because obviously, it's all, it's all going to quantum leap in a minute into to Evelyn and and that kind of different take on the Sixth Doctor. So so yeah, I just found it really interesting that uh, that we do open with that Sixth Doctor, and I wondered, you know maybe they deliberately did it knowing they would move on as a sort of contrast so they can go well look you know he's got light and shade because we because i think we all know that colin you know is very passionate about that character and his journey so he would have had a lot to say um so yes all of that very interested by the behind the scenes stuff going on there but as a story um it's actually really interesting you know it doesn't just rest on its laurels. It doesn't just go, we've got a sound monster, isn't that great? You know, round of applause for the audio drama boys. It doesn't do that. um It's also surprisingly upfront about the fact that that's what the monster is. So I kind of feel like if this was on TV, it would be more of a twist. Kind of, it might be halfway through, because this would have been 45 minute episodes. So maybe it would have been two episodes into this. We'd be like, it's an audio monster. But they don't do that. They kind of, they're sort of upfront about it. And the reason for that is that there's more going on than just an audio monster. So you've got this political intrigue going on. With Lisa Bowerman, who gets to play a complete monster, which is brilliantly jarring when you're you're only used to Lisa Bowerman being Bernice. Everybody loves Bernice, she's great. And it's just, oh god, she can she can play horrible as well. So that's great. You know, she's got this extra dimension of playing this utter vacuum of a person who just wants, you know, this this awful political presence who wants to uh, control the masses and uh, disregard democracy. And so so what you end up with is this, this monster. It's a sort of question of, well, is that really the antagonistic force here? Or is it her? Um, and that kind of just gives you a lot more to chew on in the story. And um, yeah, the monster ends up kind of playing a part in her downfall. So... So yeah, even though I can sort of assume why we kind of departed from this Doctor Companion setup, and um, it seems a little strange in hindsight, kind of like we were saying about Phantasmagoria, that there are some aspects of it that seem a little odd in hindsight. It seems a little odd to have a bickering Sixth Doctor and Perry. Um, it's a strong enough story that you know I'd 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 recommend it regardless of. Uh, you know, questions of context and things like that. So,
1: um,
0: yeah, it's it's a bit of a banger, to be quite honest.
1: It's everyone sort of credits Sylvester McCoy as being the big Finnish Doctor that sort of immediately knocked it out of the park with the Fearmonger, which we are going to come to fairly shortly. Mm. But um, this is a very, very strong start for the Sixth Doctor. And you're right, it's not... Generally, what we'd get from the Sixth Doctor at Big Finish. And again, you're right about the pairing with Perry, even though the majority of the Sixth Doctor era on screen is with Perry, there isn't, even now, there isn't as much Big Finish with the two as you would expect. Um, But it's, yeah, it's again sort of straight out the door. We've got a really good, really strong story here, and Evelyn's going to come along soon. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But um, yeah, it 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 starts strong and it stays strong, and I think it stays strong perhaps because of Evelyn. But it's good to just have this proper season twenty two story nice right at the start with a familiar pairing. Um, and as I said, we're going to move on to Evelyn because the next story we're going to talk about is the Marion conspiracy, which is um it's a historical and this is something that big finish they still do every now and again now but in the early days they did it sort of fairly often they gave us that sort of william hartner era style pure historical story there's no aliens there are no monsters it's the doctor and the companion are getting involved with what's happening in the past and that's about it really and There's a little bit of sort of sci-fi stuff around Evelyn, but ultimately it's still a historical story. Uh, It's a great way to introduce a companion. Uh, Evelyn is a great companion. Um, And it it kind of all starts here, and it's this nice sort of fairly low-key historical story. Um, So, yeah, talk to us about the Marion Conspiracy.
0: Well, I said earlier that uh, I wanted to avoid uh, favourites and stuff. Uh, That was a blatant lie. Obviously, the Marion Conspiracy is a huge favourite, so uh, it was a little bit of a struggle listening to it, thinking, well, what am I going to say? Because this is just really good. Um, I would say with the historical thing, that's something that really fascinates me about Doctor Who because uh, the sort of perception I had of fandom growing up which was like the 90s when you've got all those non-fiction books of reviews and handbooks and stuff, was that everybody hated historicals. It was like, well, that's why they went away. They were rubbish. And I just think that's such a tragedy because I genuinely think if you have a TARDIS and an alien, which is the Doctor, and you add that to any story you want, it's got science fiction in it. So you you can make that argument. You can be like, this story slots into the science fiction genre of Doctor Who. Uh, even if the story is not going to be killer crocodiles from Planet X or something. Um, So I just think that that Doctor Who should be big and wide enough to encompass historicals. And in this one, you know, like you say, there is a little bit of uh, they throw you a bone. You know, there's there's an element of history being rewritten, uh, which gives you a nice little sci-fi button to add on to the thing and i'm yeah totally fine with that i think that's more than enough uh science fiction content for this to feel like a, a natural fit for doctor who um and it's great the way it introduces evelyn because uh evelyn rather because the story you know it's about her so it's it it's needs to be her its a story you would you would have to include her in it because it's about her family and it's about her attitude to history and um I just really like that approach to the character. You know, they haven't just gone, oh, we met this actor and we think she's really good, so we'll introduce her and Doctor Who. They, they clearly went, let's really round out this character. You know, she's got loads of information just about her and it just comes out of her in such an entertaining way. And uh, yeah, the story really fits around her beautifully. And not to mention, you know, it's such a dynamic just right away with uh, with the Doctor in her lecture and he's got this annoying little beeping thing which is, you know, Doctor Who all over he's always got an annoying thing that goes ding and she's just like if you don't shut up I will, I will eject you from this classroom and immediately that's like the Sixth Doctor's bluster and all of that is just water against a cliff it's just not going to work so you just have this relationship already where He's going to be trying to be his usual kind of clever, clever self. And she's just like, well, I'm clever too. And I, you know, not to say Perry isn't clever, of course she is, but Evelyn's a bit older, she's got a bit more experience, so she just doesn't take it for granted. She's just like, well, all right, then, what do you mean? And, you know, he says, oh, you're not allowed to leave the TARDIS. She says, well, you know, I'm a historian. I'm going to leave the TARDIS, (laughs) so deal with it. And, yeah, it's just, it's a really great dynamic it's so so clear why people latched onto it because yeah it pushes the sixth doctor to stop trying so hard to be kind of the smartest and the brightest person in the room he can kind of accept he's smart evelyn's smart you know and it's yeah it all starts here and it's it's a really subtle story as well because you're presented with these characters who it should be or, or rather could be kind of black and white goodies and baddies and you know you've got mary and she's just quite happily having people burned at the stake which is just it doesn't get much more black and white than that but the story and particularly the doctor kind of not agree with her of course but you know hear her out and say well look whatever else you can say about her she really believes she's doing the right thing here and she's wrong and there's a tremendous tragedy to to this beyond even beyond the obvious you know all the way through the story she's just kind of presented as this person who's really trying and really wants to help people but she's so dangerously wrong that it's just history will judge her and there are there are moments where they try not to change history necessarily but just to kind of buffer her and just be like look you can do this but you'll be a monster and she's just utterly unfazed and i think that whole approach to characters as well you know you've got uh sort of conspiracy going on to, to assassinate her. And that in itself is, you know, these people are trying to kill a, kill kill someone. I mean, that's that's not good, is it? But they kind of present it as, no, they really need change to happen because it's really damaging their lives. So I think the only character in it is, uh, there's a French character, I think his name's something like Philippe de Noy, and he's the only one who genuinely seems a little bit like... He's a baddie, just kind of the way he behaves. And he sort of betrays his fellow conspirators at one point. But yeah, generally speaking, the story is very much presenting us with history and just saying, well, history happens. Some of it isn't very nice. And uh, yeah, I think a historian companion, that's their bread and butter.
1: One thing sort of moving forward with this TARDIS team that I really like is they don't just use it as an excuse to dump the Doctor and Evelyn in history all week. Evelyn has this sort of very rich and varied set of stories, and you know, she does visit present-day Earth, she visits the future, she visits alien planets, she eventually settles on an alien planet. Um but the fact that they sort of play to her strengths in this one and then go, yeah, but she's brilliant in all these other situations too. I, I really like that and i think it's one thing that really makes evelyn work as a character um they they sort of set out to do something different with evelyn and it just worked they created something brilliant uh and this is very much where it all begins she's awesome from the start she doesn't become yeah. a good companion after a few stories she doesn't require that first few stories to settle into the tardis and she's straight away she's just in it and she's brilliant and a few releases in, she's saving Gallifrey from a Dalek invasion <laughs> um, in a story that couldn't be any further away from this. But, yeah, mm. she it's the fact that she's such a strong character to start with that makes her work in the more fish-out-of-water stories. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a great companion introduction. It's a great use of the... Idea of historical and okay, maybe we've seen Star Trek do this story a few times throughout the 90s. Perhaps you know, it's Deep Space Nine's future tense, maybe a, an influence on this, that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's great, it's a really solid first story for Evelyn, it's a really good story for the Sixth Doctor. Like you say, a lot of Sixth Doctor perceptions are challenged within the first couple of scenes of this. Um, and it allows the sort of character development that Big Finish have done with him, and that is obviously, like you said, very important to Colin Baker as well. Um, and we've we've got another Sixth Doctor and Evelyn story to talk about next, which is uh, Blood Tide, um, and it's another one actually set in the past. But this isn't a pure historical; this one does have monsters in it in the form of Silurians and of course the all important first audio appearance of the Merca um, <laughs> this is uh, the Sixth Doctor and Evelyn meet Charles Darwin and Silurians and the Merker, and it's another sort of kind of rip roaring adventure um, it, it, it feels like it's really fast paced this one it's, it's your basic traditional Silurian story I think it doesn't do anything to exceptional with them but at the same time it it does do something interesting with the historical format with evelyn with darwin as a character and i think silurians are actually the perfect villain to have in this and it was quite rare for big finish Mm. to be bringing back classic villains at this stage i think they'd only actually done daleks and cyberman cybermen before this oh and the master um it was just we was got just, to, yeah. was just breeding before or after it was about the same time wasn't it Ooh, i'm not going to commit
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't, no, don't commit don't commit
1: uh we, we're terrible fans we haven't memorized the the monthly range in order um it's just terrible of us um but what are your thoughts on Blood Tide?
0: Um, Well, you said, again, incidentally, uh, this just further ruins my supposed... try not to pick the favourites, because, yeah, I love this one. Um, You refer to it as traditional and rip-roaring. I think that's exactly it. Um, This will sound like damning with faint praise, but it's not. I do think it's a tremendously trad story, executed very, very well. Like, this is the kind of... On the surface, this is exactly the kind of Doctor Who story I would want. Um... You know, you've got a bit of history, you've got a scary thing, and, you know, it's it's fast and it's entertaining. But everything about it kind of needs to be there. None of it's taken for granted. So we haven't got a story where you could have subbed in the Sontarans or something. And we haven't got a story where you could sub in Perry or something. It The Silurians being there enhances what the story is about. Evelyn being there enhances what the story's about i mean the whole thing excuse me uh, revolves around her interests so you know she's only here because the doctor's kind of giving her a treat letting her meet charles darwin you know because that's something that's important to us already we can see that she's someone who means a sufficient amount to the doctor that he will go out of his way to do something like this and the choice of the silurians who you could argue even are not really a science fiction thing. They're more of an alternate history thing, because they, you know, because they were there first and all of that. So maybe I can tenuously still claim this as a kind of a historical leaning more towards pure historical. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go with that. Um, but the Silurians being here is brilliant because it's it challenges Darwin's theory before he's even had it. Because um, you've got, you know, we all know the theory of evolution, but the uh, the sort of lead silurian scientist um very much posits well no i i made humans like i just made that happen so and he doesn't outright say evolution doesn't make any sense but the fact that he says something along those lines is just critically damaging to to darwin's perception or you would think in the course of the story he kind of organically comes full circle and realizes that's not true or or at least That doesn't damage what he's thought you know that that actually enhances his understanding of humanity because humanity has changed since the scientists did this and incidentally for a traditional story this is seems like the best catch-all term for it um it lobs in a hand grenade like humanity was made by the silurians apparently that's that's an astonishing massive (laughs) revelation that i think Evelyn and the Doctor really take in their stride, all things considered. But hey. Um, Darwin is fantastic in this. He's Miles Richardson, who, you know, if you'd been listening to lots of big finish ups now, you'd be like, oh god, that's that's Bracteotel. But he's fantastic as as Darwin, you know, he's just filled with curiosity, but later he's filled with doubt. And there's this amazing climactic scene where they have to uh, kind of reenact the curse of Fenric a bit with the old you need to say something that you believe in thing. And he starts trotting out uh, Bible verses, I, I think. And then eventually the doctor is, is just kind of saying to him, no, 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 you know, something you really believe in, come on. And he switches to his theory and they use that. That's The climactic moment for him is committing to his theory and it's just such a such a neat piece of writing and also really crafty for the doctor because we later learn that Darwin didn't really need to do all of that. You know, it was actually the Doctor giving it some, some psychic welly. Uh But he was deliberately helping Darwin along with that. And it's uh, it's a really good one for the Doctor, actually. There's a, there's a couple of moments in this where he's... Uh, he's uh You know, because we, we talk about the Sixth Doctor being sort of softer and sweeter with Evelyn, but he's still in there, you know, and he's still funny and, and snide when the occasion calls for it, and there's a bit where the Silurian... Uh, is is one of the Silurians, is is arguing with him and kind of making their case. And they say, oh, we were here first. And he just goes, we were here first. Like, he's just the disdain he puts into that is just brilliant, Um, which is something, you know, Colin's very good at. He kind of really thinks about the delivery of every line. He's like, well, how can I get the most out of that? Um, But yeah, the Silurians are great too. I think they really nail the vocal effect in this. Um, it's a little bit of a subtle one, as Doctor Who monsters go. It's sort of a strange noise. It's kind of a sort of a blobby sound. Is this <laughs> not Mr. Blobby? I hasten to add, but it's uh, it's slightly difficult to make out what they're saying, almost even on TV. But they really they really get it right, and you know you really feel the performances there. You know, even though they've got the, all this distortion on them, you really feel that one of them is just utterly tortured and mad about what's happened to him because he was cast out by his people and now he's just consumed with uh, ambition and revenge. And you've got this other one who she's uh, gone along with him and now she's kind of realising that that's all the wrong thing to do and the kind of regret in her voice is all coming through despite all of this distortion. So it's just, yeah, tremendous production just all round. And and you mentioned the murka It has never looked better. Good Lord. Can't even... Can't even smell the paint on it. It's genuinely, it's, it's incredible what a difference it makes just not being able to see the thing. You know, it, it reminds me of um, the the Dalek Invasion of Earth Normalisation uh, describes the Slither monster and uh, it does it as, as this terrifying predator and that's such a great kind of subtle course correction from uh, what was effectively a tarpaulin on, uh, on the screen. But yeah, the murker This this story is is very briefly, but justice for the murker So, yeah, it's it's definitely a story I would rush into the hands of someone who's never listened to any audio Doctor Who, and just say, "Here you go." They, they nailed it.
1: <laughs> it's yeah, I think the murker Not only does it work better on audio because let's face it, it looked bloody ridiculous in Fury from the Deep. Mm. Oh no. Oh, Warriors of the you Deep. Wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh no, it looks absolutely ridiculous in Warriors of the Deep. Um, but it's used more effectively here as well. It is used to attack a ship. Um. Yeah. Which it's better than just having it plodding along some overlit corridors. Like the the way that it is written to be used is is far more effective than how it's written to be used in Warriors. Um, I, I also find it interesting that they, they use a Doctor Who and the Silurians Silurian on the cover uh, as opposed yes. to the Warriors of the Deep one. And uh, we've, we've got the Silurians' voices as well. It's not the voices from Warriors of the Deep. So they're very much going for that early 70s Silurian as opposed to that one from the 80s that maybe they didn't want people to have in mind while listening to this story because – Like Warriors of the Deep did do a bit of damage to the Silurians' reputation.
0: That that kind of makes it interesting that they have the Merker in it at all. Maybe I guess they're kind of like, let's just try and rehabilitate. Because even the characters, I don't think they massively see the Merker. You know, like you say, it's attacking a boat. It sort of takes the Jaws approach. Like it's it's just a thing that will happen to us. We don't need to. uh, We don't need to focus on what it looks like.
1: But yeah. Yeah, it's it's used well here it's used far better than it ever could have been on screen um mm. and I, i'm glad that it does have its sort of little moment of redemption it does kind of actually but and it you know it makes sense that the Silorians have a sort of cyborg pet sea monster that they can use as a weapon because why not mm. um yeah so let's let's move to the seventh doctor so we've got two more stories to look at um Again, I think you've done some brilliant, like made some brilliant choices here. Uh, the Fearmonger is the first one and it's it really is The Seventh Doctor entering Big Finish with a bang. What a story. Mm. It's, it's really strong. It's believably sort of where the series could have gone had it continued to exist into 1990. Um, it's The Seventh Doctor and Ace carrying on after Survival. It kind of tips his hat to the new adventures but it immediately sets out now we're doing our own thing this is the seventh doctor and ace in the 90s we're picking up where survival left off uh, and i think that in itself was a brave decision when big finish got started they could very easily have gone oh well actually ace left the doctor and became a dalek killer and fought in wars and then came back and they didn't do any of that um so, yeah, it's cracking story. It's very, very sort of strong politically. um we've talked about it. I can't remember who we talked about it with, but I've talked about it on this podcast before, and we've sort of said that in many ways it could actually be considered more relevant now than when it originally came out, sort of nearly twenty five years ago um so let's talk about the warmonger. go for it.
0: uh I think you mean the fearmonger. <laughs> I don't know what the warmonger is. Yes um, I do. The warmonger sorry. is
1: um no, I've not even got anything witty. I've not even got a joke <laughs> the warmonger. That's it's, fine. It's his own. There, there thing. probably
0: is a warmonger. I mean, just even in context, because we find out that there are there are monsters that kind of elicit different uh, emotions. So there's a warmonger out there. So that's yeah. fine. We'll um, go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The fear Um yeah. Sure. Um so yeah, we mentioned that uh it's very it's a strong start for the seventh doctor and i think a part of that obviously you know uh somebody somebody wrote it so so it's their story jonathan blum um but the seventh doctor era had such a kind of crystallized point to make uh which you know i I think was you know andrew cartmel saying he wanted dr who to bring down the government um and it's just you can really tell with that era that it's trying to do something and i think when the Series 24 set came out, I thought it was a really wonderful kind of example of you can see when they start to do that. So I actually, I really enjoy Time in the Rani, but once you get into Paradise Towers, you can immediately tell that there's this kind of emphasis on the Doctor as someone who's going to upset the status quo. And uh, yeah, so this, once you you know get into sort of Season 26, obviously Curse of Fenric, he's, he's all over the place with that, and Ghostlight, he's doing it with Mind Games. And in this one, it's it's really the kind of political thriller you would get in the new adventures so i think in a way that kind of gives the story a leg up because you can kind of say right here is what the seventh doctor era feels like and it feels like something that could only be that era so this story wouldn't make as much sense you know with peter davison in it or something um but interestingly uh when i you know inadvertently went back and listened to whispers of terror uh, there are actually some crossover elements in the, in the two stories theme wise so you've got a sort of a creature behind the scenes that's uh, influencing people in some way. You've got uh, a wicked politician who's putting out this kind of horrific far-right uh, feeling rather than thinking stuff. And uh, there's a question throughout both stories of, is the monster actually responsible for this? And who, you know, where does the monster lie? And things like that. Um, I just think that's fascinating. You know, I very much believe that's... a, a I forget what the term is. It's something like concurrent evolution or something where two ideas come up completely independently. But it's interesting because of how the two different stories feel very different. Anyway, um, you're right that it's it's unfortunately aged very well, like I wish it hadn't. Uh, the kind of horrible uh, right-wing attack of the story, or, or rather Jackie Pierce, uh, her character. Just the stuff she says. You know, i think there's a bit where she she says that she wants people to stop thinking and start feeling and it's just that's oh that's i've I heard that you know that's very much the the kind of playbook used these days so there's a lot of themes in this that are just kind of good grief how how is this more of a problem now than it was when this was written but hey that's that's good storytelling it kind of finds something and uh, highlights a real concern um Yeah, so I mentioned that there's there's the monster and uh sort of where does it reside and that kind of leads to a great kind of prolonged uh guessing game that really keeps going throughout the entire story. So there's a great cliffhanger to part three where we suddenly realise that this creature where the, the whole point of it is that it's sort of it's parasite and it kind of latches onto people and uses them to uh to elicit a fear response from people. It seems to be in the Doctor. So Ace then has to pivot kind of on the quiet to dealing with that because she hasn't really got anyone to talk to about it massively that would be the doctor so she has to just kind of subtly figure it out and and deal with it on her own and then that's not even where that particular process ends you know it's a question of is that the case so yeah it's a great kind of political thriller and it really feels like sylvester and sophia both responding very well to it because there are moments in it where both of them really, you know, get to their characters are really caring about what's going on. There's a moment where Ace is uh, shot. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a fantastic moment early on where Ace uh, effectively talks someone out of blowing something up. He's got a he's got a a bomb and he's got a timer. He has a yeah he's got a timer with it. Sorry, I'm trying to remember the seven stories keep them all straight. And uh, Ace's point is, well, you wouldn't have a timer if you uh, actually wanted to blow it up. Because, uh, you know, this means you can sort of distance yourself from the whole thing. You're not going to blow it up right here and now. And this works. Later on in the story, uh, she tries the same gambit with someone who's got a gun and he just shoots her. And it's just a fantastic kind of raising of the stakes of, uh, you know, Ace has learned this. You know, she's suddenly got this skill. Who knows? Maybe she picked it up from the doctor, you know, because he's got that happiness patrol thing where he's like, pull the trigger, end my life. All of that stuff. She tries it and the guy shoots her and he gets her in the shoulder and there's this scene where she's in hospital and the doctor just sounds devastated that this has happened on his watch. And, you know, it's, it's a shoulder wound. She's okay, although it does come back to bother her later on, which I really appreciated. I thought well, it's good that we can be consistent with that. But it was such a lovely performance to kind of hear the doctor, this doctor of all, you know. It's, everyone always goes on about him being such a game player and, and psychic mind games and all of that, to be like, no, he also just fundamentally gives a damn about his friend so yeah there's there's tons going on between the characters in this and like i said jacqueline pierce is the villain in it and again you know another little accidental blake seven uh nod there but yeah she's so fantastic as this character who's not really like Servalan, you know serverland uh very much believes the nonsense she comes out with whereas the uh political figure she's playing in this one Kind of differently, actually, from uh, from Lisa Bowman's one in Whispers of Terror. Um, I don't think the Jackie Pierce character here really does believe this stuff. I think she's just kind of using it. So there's, there's shades of grey to that character. Um, but yeah, so Fearmonger really feels like just a kind of classic slice of what the Seventh Doctor era should be doing. Like you said, if they just carried on. And I think that's... Uh, that really did give it a leg up. That's probably... I don't really know the reception of the story at the time, but uh, that probably helped it. I think people would have listened to this and gone, yeah, exactly, that's exactly it. Whereas you might listen to Phantasmagoria and be a little bit like, well, I don't remember this era because it sort of wasn't really a thing. Whereas with this, it's just like they've got a gift. They've got both the actors willing to frack on and, and keep doing this stuff and so they can just go yep let's just let's do exactly what they should be doing um yeah it's it's a an incredible first go <laughs> for these characters it's like wow they really got it on the first round
1: there is that real sense of sort of picking up where they left off in the best possible way um, it it isn't sort of straight out of season 26 it is doing a bit more it is a it is, it's a bit more grown up I don't think um, sure. I don't think the late 80s or even if it had continued into the early 90s I don't think it'd have done anything so overtly political I don't think it'd have done anything like that there is an element of we've grown up a little bit Ace has grown up a little bit I think that's probably the most important thing um yeah. I I can see there being a gap between survival and this but not a huge gap um and I I do quite like that it I guess it's kind of the way that the six doctor and Perry's relationship kind of shifts between season 22 and season 23. um mm. the, there's obviously a bit of time past they've spent some more time together they've mellowed towards each other they're, they're better friends now um and yeah, there's a similar sort of shift here. Um, but yeah, it works great as a story. I I remember first listening to it and thinking that Ace actually getting shot was a little bit too, bit too over-the-top, bit gratuitous, but <laughs> listening to it again recently, no, actually, that kind of fits. I like the idea that Ace is now pushing herself into that kind of dangerous situation because as you say is kind of the doctor's influence and the doctor's reaction to it is fantastic and um, yeah the context
0: of it i think is really important too because it is the second time in the story if the first time she tried something like that she got shot i think that would be that would be quite gratuitous that'd be like oh this isn't your granddad's doctor who this is violent anything can happen but the fact that she does successfully avoid a violent confrontation earlier kind of makes it uh more unexpected i think
1: yeah absolutely um and i quite like that this like i say it sets the seeds for a more or plants the seeds for a more mature ace uh, a more sort of world wary ace and an ace that can talk herself out of situations and be a bit of a leader and that's mm-hmm. something that becomes really important when hex comes in because in many ways hex is ace's companion not the doctor's um and that that kind of it all sort of starts here and there's something really rewarding about listening to you know this and dust breeding and the rapture and cold it's and all that kind of thing before you get to the harvest uh, and carry on with the hex stuff it really does feel like there's there's development for ace and i know people kind of go oh well it started that whole mcshane storyline that went nowhere it, it doesn't matter ace they were willing to develop Ace as a character from the start, and I think that that has led to some really, really great stuff from Big Finish.
0: Yeah, I mean, like you said, it feels like there's been a gap, and I think in in the case of sort of Colin and Nicola, it feels like the sorry the Doctor and Perry. it feels like they've uh, they've mellowed and they've sort of got over their sort of rough edges. With uh, Seventh Doctor and Ace, it feels like they've just got better at what they do and yeah. you know obviously that they're closer as friends because they've been through stuff like Ghostlight. but um they're like a little troublemaking unit and they're very kind of because this one also uh a little bit like primeval kind of starts with the ball already rolling there's quite a bit of stuff has already happened and uh yeah you do get the feeling that this is this is their day job like they're not landing places and being like we could potentially have a nice day but if there's a dead body i guess we'll get inveigled in some shenanigans this feels like the doctor's deliberately going somewhere and being like oh something a bit iffy there and ace is like yeah let's sort it so i I do like that progression
1: yeah very much that the doctor going into sort a situation which again is where seasons 25 and 26 sort of went so you know in a lot of stories in those two seasons the doctor lands somewhere with a purpose remembrance of the daleks happiness patrol ghost light fenric um it's it's all very much he's landing somewhere because there's work to do um and it 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 follows on from that as well yeah it's 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 a great little continuation of where the eighties may have been going the late eighties may have been going um and our next seventh doctor story is it's something quite different um I'm disappointed we didn't actually get more of this. I think this is a cracking story. And I think that um, it it does something strange and interesting and ventures into territory that Big Finish seems to have generally, for the most part, avoided since. Uh, So it's Shadow of the Scourge, which was, was it a sidestep that it was credited as? Like this and... um, I think the Dark Flame was the other one. Dark Flame was the other one. And then there was obviously the Holy Terror as well. They were kind of billed as sidesteps. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was kind of stepping into book and comic territory. And it's a story where we get the Seventh Doctor, Benny, and Ace just as a functioning TARDIS team. Uh, And I I really like that. I kind of actually wish we'd had more just sort of traditional Seventh Doctor, Benny and Ace four parters. Um, This and like a couple of others that's basically it there's not much at all um so what made you pick shadow with the scourge
0: um partly it was lack of familiarity i have heard this um but it was probably five years ago or something Uh, but also partly since i heard this i've read all of the new adventures uh, because i went down a bit of a bit of a rabbit hole which was because of big finish actually because i heard their love and war story and and was kind of like okay now what (laughs) so i went off and read the whole kit and caboodle um i'm also really sad that they didn't do more of these i I read there's a great big finished book which is out of print but you know if you ever come across it it's great called bernie summerfield the inside story by simon gerrier and it's got loads of information about um all of the benny books and most of the audio dramas obviously has to cut off eventually and i was reading about shadow of the scourge and they were saying how effectively, Shadow of the Scourge and Dark Flame were two of their worst-selling releases. And I think that's bizarre. I mean, I know Dark Flame was a little contentious. I think people reacted quite poorly to that one. But Shadow of the Scourge is a very strong story. I think there's a sort of element of people feeling like they can't just jump onto anything related to the new adventures. Like, if you've missed the boat, it's too late. Um, Which I think is a shame, because, first of all, having read them, I think they're a hell of a lot more accessible than they themselves kind of put themselves out there as. You know, they're advertised or they were advertised as being too broad and too deep for the small screen, which is very grandiose. And I can kind of see why they want it to be grandiose. But at the same time, it's a little bit off-putting because you're kind of like, you are talking to Doctor Who fans here. You don't want to tell them this is not like Doctor Who. Because a lot of the time it was, quite frankly. And uh, this story uh I think exemplifies a lot of the stuff about the new adventures that worked. It doesn't feel like you've uh you've got to do any homework because you've just got the Doctor Bernie Since uh just having an adventure. Uh the stuff that makes it kind of new adventuresy is more subtle. So because you know it's it's hard to kind of throw a dart and hit, well, what are you going to do with this audio adventure that's gonna make it a new adventure, apart from just adding bernice and switching out the costumes which you can only tell from looking at the front cover anyway um and i think it's kind of a it's about internalizing stuff so you've got characters who are you know living and breathing and they've got a lot going on in their lives there's a lot of side characters in this who have family histories and uh, kind of family struggles relationship problems and stuff like that so we just you know just by virtue of the fact that a new adventure novel is going to be longer than a target book we got loads more of that in the new adventures and um there was also a kind of a tendency to focus on people's uh literal inner lives like their mental uh landscape or whatever so inside their minds so, there's bits of this where we're inside people's minds, but particularly we're inside the doctor's mind, which is, you know, a slightly radical idea in, in terms of uh, stuff like, you know, classic Doctor Who would probably wouldn't do something like that, but the books were always doing stuff like that. And there's a bit in this where the doctor kind of, or rather I think Bernice is in there with him, kind of perceives his other selves kind of hanging around. And that's a very poor, poor Cornell thing that he did in um, Time Worm Revolution. He kind of, Came up with that Guardians of the Edge thing that we have uh, in The Power of the Doctor, where kind of somewhere inside the Doctor's mind, the other Doctors are just kind of ticking along. Like right? they're still there to an extent. That's kind of nodded at in this story. But um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very strong one for the Doctor. He's got plenty of stuff. He gets to be a, a game player, but, you know, he's trying to stay one step ahead of these aliens. It's kind of an invasion of time story for him where it looks like he's collaborating but really he's not and it goes wrong as as it does in the evasion of time i think it's a bad idea i think that's what we should take stop trying it's not a good idea um but um yeah he gets to really kind of have to reassess what he's done and the damage that it's doing to people and bernice uh you know it's i think it's acknowledged actually in that book i mentioned the, the inside story Uh, Sophie Aldred acknowledged that the dynamic was a little bit hard to get into where you've got the two characters and I think the problem there is just that we have to hit the ground running with this like we can't ease people in and go here are some new adventures, right now we're all used to this so it was kind of a left field thing like with the Holy Terror being a one shot that's easy, you don't need to do any you know, you don't need to think about it to adjust to the idea that the Sixth Doctor is just on his own um with this dynamic it's a little harder and ace in the new adventures novels is very different to the one in the books and you know sometimes to her detriment they kind of made her more of a soldier character and that's that's something that's become a bit of a trope really for the character since then you know she's uh, supposed to be kind of sexier and uh more violent if if you can believe it and uh, the picture on the front cover is actually her in a Sophie Aldred in a kind of '90s photo shoot, um looking like the character on uh, on the novel First Frontier, I think it was. So for Ace, anyway, what what I'm very badly trying to get at is I don't know if there's very much for Sophie Aldred to latch onto as uh, kind of new adventures. Ace, uh, it's it's a difficult thing to do. So with Bernice, you know, pretty much the character in the novels is the same voice as the one you would have got in the big finish, Bernie summerfield stories so lisa bowman who much like colin baker tremendously cares about the voice of that character and how she's portrayed um she can kind of slot into this whereas with ace it's, it's mostly sort of normal ace so i think that kind of holds it back a little bit from feeling like a new adventure uh, but sophie Ultra is still great in it you know there's a really there's a very funny sequence of events where uh the monsters are kind of able to control you through sound so she um she suggests that somebody kind of temporarily deafen her which is obviously not something i'd recommend anyone try and i'm not sure it would work quite the way it works in this but we'll go with it uh but it's really funny the way it kind of just keeps coming back to be just this utter annoyance for her um so yeah it's it's a really interesting one i really wish that we had got more but i can i can perfectly understand if you know the numbers weren't there maybe they'd go right okay that's not going to work i think the problem is that they tried it too soon uh i kind of wish they'd held out and come back to it later on and you know because at this point in time we've got the luxury of looking back and going big finish love spin-offs and back then that they were rare you know you had your bernice summerfield you had some all sorts of crazy other stuff but doctor who wise not a lot going on so i wish we'd got more um i certainly wish we'd got some doctor and bernice adventures that's something that bothered me in the books they're not enough of uh just the doctor and bernice the two of them work together fantastically and i think they're only in about less than half a dozen novels as as a duo um so that's that's something that that makes me sad. I wish uh, I wish it had been possible for for Big Finish to. Uh, it's not, not too late, mind you. There we go. There's an idea. Big Finish, please please do Seventh Doctor and Bernice adventures. That'll be fair. Um, not that not that I don't love having Ace around as well, but it's just there's a special specific dynamic to those two.
1: Um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm in complete agreement. More Seventh so Doctor and Benny would be absolutely brilliant. Um when i first heard this i'd i'd never gone near a new adventure i knew very little about them and i enjoyed it i thought it was a really good story i kind of i was aware of who Benice was i was aware of where she'd come from um in fact i'm about to slightly retract what i just said i might have read human nature just human nature but um yeah you know i was totally willing to accept yeah this is benny on audio she's absolutely brilliant and yeah it was the first time i'd kind of come across the character really except like i say possibly reading human nature beforehand um yeah it's it's sort of really it's really good it's wonderful stuff and i think that had big finish done it a few years later like you say maybe it could have led to something else maybe we could have got a bit more and it is never too late um but yeah i I think that, as the only Doctor Who story that came out that month, I can see why people kind of went oh no, not sure <laughs> about that. however, if it had come out now when we've got um you know a box set or two of a doctor each month and to spin off and a torchwood uh, all of these things, then it probably yeah it'd been received quite differently I think just great idea, just perhaps the wrong time mm. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for, but it's yeah. it's been great to look at these stories. I do, like I said at the start, really like revisiting these early big finish days and just sort of seeing what they tried, what what worked, what didn't, what they got started with, how they introduced all of these characters that we now know and love, you know, um, Evelyn, for example. Uh, yeah, it's been a good little set to talk about. Um, I think we'll be back sometime fairly soon to talk a bit more about Evelyn because sort of... Preparing for this, we realized how much we love the character and how little attention we've given her as a podcast, really. So, I think an Evelyn episode should definitely be popping up fairly soon. Uh, in the meantime, though, I will say a huge thank you to Gareth for joining me. You're most welcome. Thank you. And um, yeah, we'll be back for more podcasting very soon. Goodbye now. Ta ta.